This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 77. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Doug Moan, editor of NoCalledStrikes.com. I met Doug recently at the Microcap Leadership Summit in Chicago, and I enjoyed getting to know him, as well as learning about his experiences regarding investing in microcap stocks. What is interesting about our conversation you're about to hear is that, unlike most investors, Doug doesn't mind the liquidity. In fact, finding revenue-generating companies listed on the pink sheets is part of his criteria. Like most of the interviews you've heard on here, most guests have said in one degree or another that there's a natural edge when investing in microcap stocks because most institutions can't and won't get involved until these businesses have matured. I would argue that Doug takes this notion a step further by looking at illiquid stocks that generate revenues on the pink sheets. Most investors don't even start there. The goal for this interview is to learn more about Doug's investing strategy and his journey looking for winners on the pink sheets. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 77, and I would like to welcome Doug Moen, editor of NoCalledStrikes.com. Doug, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, great speaking with you again. It was wonderful meeting you in Chicago a couple of weeks ago at the Microcap Leadership Summit. It is great meeting you as well, and I'm, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on to the uh, program here today with me. So, you know, to get our get to jump right in, get started. You know, what is your background, and and how'd you get your start investing in microcap stocks? Well, my background's uh, pretty different than a lot of the folks that you meet or you might be interviewing. I'm a regular person. <laughs> I had a IT uh, job with a large oil company for. Uh, 20 plus years. Prior to that, I actually had a petroleum engineering degree and graduated in the oil bust of the 80s. And um, I'm in my mid 50s. And about five years ago, I was able to retire from my day job and just spend my time on full time investing. I've been a serious part time investor for about 20 years. And um, a few years ago, I got to a position where I didn't really need to go into my day job anymore, and that opened up more time to take my investing a little bit more seriously. I had an interesting start um, in that uh, 30, 40 years ago, I would see my dad's uh, stock reports, or he was kind of an old-fashioned investor in the sense that you would have the uh, shares, this is all in the 70s, pre-electronic uh, trading, and three or four times a year, a dividend check would show up at the uh, at the mailbox, 
And of course, the, the, you have to realize these are quite small stakes. So it might be a dividend check for $8 would show up or $12. But hey, you know, how's this money coming into the mailbox? Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. And so I kind of always had an interest in how that kind of worked. And I played a lot of uh, stock market type games when I was a kid and just found that all very fascinating. And then after I had um, my own job and started saving money um, in the 80s, I dabbled with a few things and I found Peter Lynch and read his material. That was the first stuff that really uh, deeply resonated with me. And then in the uh, mid-90s, I had a much better job and I started reading uh, Warren Buffett's reports and that totally hooked me. Mm-hmm. And then I worked in Angola, West Africa, uh, helping Angolans build a computer network. And um, that had a nice overseas premium in the job. And so that kind of built up some savings that I was able to then invest. And so early on, my investing was really focused on um, large cap stocks. I had read about all the evils of small cap stocks and didn't want to have anything to do with that. And as I got better, at my investing, I realized there were opportunities in these uh, small cap stocks that I had just casually turned off to the side because I'd heard all these bad things about them. (laughs) And I got more confident that actually there were some good values in there. Well, once I started digging into that space a little bit more, I realized that's exactly where I wanted to be because the basic premise of my investing is I want to buy things that really smart people would buy who have lots of assets and have lots of resources. But frankly, they can't buy because they have too much money. If you're managing $10 billion, you can't buy something for $100 million. Sure. Um, that, that's too small. It doesn't make a difference to your portfolio. So if I'm buying into a company that has a $100 million market cap, I don't have to compete against really smart people. Um, the, the best and the brightest with the greatest resources can't touch this space. And so there's a whole network of interesting folks who are um, not associated with massive hedge funds that um, look into these kind of stocks. And I'm, I'm one of those folks uh, because our assets are small enough that we can um, buy a position that maybe trades a couple thousand shares a day mm-hmm. and it's very meaningful to me. <laughs> yep. Well, it's, it's true. It's, it's, but it tr- doesn't mean anything to uh, Bill Ackman. Sure. Yeah, no, it's trivial like that, right? You know, the people that, you know, are uh, coming out of all these Ivy league schools and have uh, <laughs> all the resources available to them. You know, they, it's not that they probably don't want to, they just can't, <laughs> you know, uh, because they just have, they, they have too many, they have too much capital, uh, that they need to then deploy. And, you know, uh, it's, it's an interesting part of our space that, you know, I think, uh, uh, most of the people I interview on here find as their edge or the, the, the competitive advantage and, and being able to find some interesting ideas. So, you know, but before, before we get into more of your process and your strategy and, and really, why you got, and even more in depth on why you got into micro caps, you know, uh, I, I, 
when I, when we met, you told me a little bit about nocalledstrikes.com and your blog, and and I, I know I've had a few people on here, like the Brandon Mackeys and uh, and even Ian and Microcap Club for you know for that matter, who uh, decided that they wanted to you know talk about their positions so that they you know it helped them in their process of developing their thesis for why and their conviction for why they wanted to potentially buy or sell or you know just you know, talking about their position. So for you, you know, what, why did you, you know, firstly, well, what is nocalledstrikes.com for those who don't know? And then why did you start this blog? Nocalledstrikes.com is my uh, investing blog. And my reason to for it to exist is that reading other people's blogs is a big source of my ideas mm-hmm. and gives me a lot of insights into things to chase down. And so if I go to a investing conference. I generally like to write up one of my more interesting investments at the time in some kind of format that I can then share with people. So if I give you my, uh, elevator speech on a, on a company, I can then refer you to the blog for a little bit more detail. I find that writing is incredibly helpful because in our brains, we're able to make every investment look really um, positive and, and uh, desirable. But in reality, almost everything we buy has some kind of flaw in it. Um, there are very few absolute slam dunks that don't have, have some kind of issue. Even if it's a slam dunk, there's probably some issue about whether it's a three-point slam dunk or a two-point slam dunk. There's always some kind of issue and nothing like getting it down on paper. I also find that it I, I don't publish as much as I, as I would like to because I find that I only want to publish things that I have a uh, pretty strong conviction in mm-hmm. because once you put it out to the world, it becomes uh, – there's some confirmation bias that starts taking effect. And um, a company I wrote up about a year and a half ago, Contour Energy, which I, I, I owned then – later sold and then got back in about six months ago and still have. Um, when that one came out, about a month later, I came across a, a new IPO that was coming out from um, uh, Warrior Metcol, uh, ticker HCC, which I've never, never owned. And I decided that actually I liked that company a little bit better for its investing, but I had already kind of mentally invested so much of my energy into the other company that in hindsight, I believe that my public commitment had kind of blocked me from um, more nibbling, moving over, or at least diversifying into the other investment. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think there is a little bit of a risk when you talk about your stocks in public that it confirms you in. But if you pick a pretty good stock to talk about, then you know, you, you don't have that much to worry about. But I find it's an writing um, really brings out the risk and also makes you challenge your numbers a little bit. Mm-hmm. Most of my investing is uh, at the level of uh, of a cocktail napkin. If I can't make a convincing argument for a company on the uh, three or four basic calculations, um, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I admire people that make fancy uh, 20-page Excel workbooks, but really, if 
you think you know these variables down to the tenth or the if you know the, that what the margin is going to do three years from now, you're a magician. Um, you're you're fooling yourself. So much of investing, once you get past the the basics, is um, staying rational, emotional control, and so easy to talk yourself into an investment if it uh, passes a couple of your filters. Uh, I'm always looking for something first and foremost, when I buy something or I'm considering buying something, you have to ask, why is this opportunity available to me? Um, (laughs) there's several million people investing in any given time, or there's uh, at least uh, a couple hundred thousand people on Wall Street representing 50 million pension funds or 50 million people through different pension and, and uh, retirement investing accounts investing on your behalf. They all have greater resources, more, um, more staff, bigger databases. Why it, why me? Why am I so lucky? And so I like to look for things that I don't feel I have to be uh, that lucky. It's just that previously, like talking about the low liquidity stocks or the small cap stocks, they're, they're too small or they don't trade enough to attract the attention of other people, in which case I feel like I have a legitimate advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, one type of opportunity I really like is stocks that are perhaps trading on the pink sheets or they are unlisted or off a major exchange for some reason and they're in the process of uplisting um, that their historical accidents are why they are why the opportunity exists and that gives me a chance to to jump in and buy something that other people would agree is a good investment but they are perhaps restricted from buying uh, low liquidity stocks. They're restricted from buying things on the pink sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can get involved in that. Or that perhaps they're very – another source is items that are – companies that aren't in index funds. Uh, if something trades on an index, it has a, uh, a large following. And if it doesn't trade on the index, it's likely to uh, be off the radar of – large funds that are index huggers. Mm -hmm. Conversely, though, uh, one of the things I really like is when you buy something or are looking to buy something that is in an index fund, and because it's in the index fund, a lot of the volume trades not based on the merits of the company, but because of how that index traded that day. Mm -hmm. And so you get a situation where the stock moves uh, without rhyme or reason to its fundamentals, I always like those kind of situations. Mm-hmm. So, so I really want to get into then your your discovery uh, phase. You know, how, how do you go about finding you know potential new ideas before then you you dig into them with with your criteria? Because it's it sounds like you have like a hybrid of you know you find it you know on your own, but also you like to see what some of the microcap institutions are doing. Or, or not doing for that matter and and uh, and then going from there am I am I kind of on the on the right path there oh oh absolutely um, I I don't find that many ideas just from myself um, 
maybe every third or fourth thing I buy is something that I would consider purely sourced from myself. Um, but most items are things that uh, I've, I've heard about, I've seen, um, following um, other people's annual reports um, or quarterly reports, looking for something that uh, is similar to what someone else has just talked about. Maybe that's considered sourcing the idea myself and not taking it from somebody else. But uh, there is no – in the small cap space, there's probably two, 300 um, companies worth following at any given time that are in my wheelhouse. And um, it's inevitable that some of those are going to be also followed by some of the same people you've had as guests on your show. And one of the great things about investing um, now that I have gray hair and I'm in my mid fifties is that all this knowledge is cumulative. And so I will see companies pop up on my radar that I have um, um, oh I I might have learned about them in 1995, 2005, and it gives me, um, you know, a tremendous advantage to see something pop up, and I have a basic understanding of that company, and then I can jump into a few current details and make a back envelope calculation. Because if you're buying something that maybe only trades 2,500 shares a day and good news comes out on it, you have a window of two or three days in the small cap space before that probably reprices to an updated value. And if you can buy it the next day, you can still get an attractive price. If you have to wait a week, you know, even in small caps, the market is somewhat efficient. Um, but I can't do that without having, uh, the knowledge of, uh, from the previous story. I'm like, Oh, I always thought that would be really good if they got rid of this bad part of their business or if someone actually bought them, maybe there's a real chance for a value realization to occur and it's not fully priced in yet. Um, that doesn't happen too often. Mostly what it helps on is, um, I kind of know, Hey, if that's happening in one place and to one company in this space, maybe I should go back and look at some of the other companies that were in that area that I haven't been looking at for the last five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so then I, know, yep. I'll just jump in and say, I especially like when I'm talking to, uh, younger investors who maybe fresh out of college or still students and they're like 25 <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, you were in junior high when this company last had its day in the sun. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, <laughs> trust me, you weren't, you know, you weren't aware that this company has history and the people I'm talking to don't, don't know its history. And I feel like I'm at a competitive edge in those kind of situations. Um, I would toss out and con- conversely, sometimes I'm scared off by things because I know of its history and perhaps a younger person without having that concern earn is able to just focus on the good things that are coming up for the company and not, right. uh, not worried about the past. But given the choice, I'd rather know what happened in the past <laughs> versus 
<laughs> versus not. For sure. So, um, so my next question to you is, you know, in terms of your criteria, you kind of already went over it a little bit, but let's try it. Let's try and summarize it all when, when it comes to what you're looking for when you're evaluating a potential new investment. Well, first of all, I have a value bent. Um, there are a multitude of ways to make money in investing and they all work. Um, so if someone says the only way to make money is by buying high growth companies or the only way to make money is to, to buy deep value, they don't know what they're talking about. There's quite a number of successful people in all different areas. I find what's really important is to stick to the style of investing that resonates with you because there will be times when things are good. And I find that I'm really good at handling upside volatility. I, it doesn't phase me at all. Uh, my stocks can go up and I'm, and I'm quite happy and it doesn't make me nervous at all. But uh, they go down and I'm human. Um, I don't like my stocks to go down. But if I really know what I own – and I feel very comfortable that that company is doing the same business today as it did last month. Who cares what the quote did? Mm -hmm. uh, if its future looks as good as the past and or the projected future, all the milestones are coming up the way they're supposed to. Um, boy, you know, volatil downward volatility is a great thing. Uh, it's a great chance to go add to your position. Mm -hmm. I can only feel that level of comfort if I understand what I have. Um, and if I'm counting on a lot of great things to happen in the future, I don't get that same level of comfort. Now, some people who are better at visualizing the future than I am um, can, can buy those things and say, honestly, um, this video on demand thing is going to be great. And Everybody in their next door neighbor, it's the only way they're going to watch movies. And Netflix is going to be like not just in the U.S., but everywhere. And God bless those people. They make a lot <laughs> like a, they make a lot of money buying companies like Netflix, which for disclosure purposes, I say I, I've never owned because I was never smart enough to see that it could take off and make its own content and do all that. And who knows how its future may play out. I still think it's really highly valued, but. Um, for people who work in that space, it's great, but that's not my space. My space is much more, um, this is a nice, dull, boring company and, uh, it's going to stay boring and no one's going to come into this space because it's boring and it will continue to grow, um, just like it has in the past, or it's going to continue having the business it's had in the past, but, uh, it's the future is going to be more stable than it appears. Um, I have some, I own a couple of rural telecom companies, which are about as boring as things can be. They're slowly melting ice cubes, but they're very slowly melting ice cubes. And uh, they generate a lot of cash and I feel pretty good about them. So uh, I have a natural inclination for things that are a little bit more on the safe and secure and boring side. What's good about boring is the stability. I don't. I'd rather read well, about something that's well, more interesting. Well, but I like this. Well, I like the staple stocks. Well, what's interesting to to note here because I think a lot of people tend to associate, you know, uh, revenue generating businesses with 
being listed on uh, a national exchange or, you know, even at the very least on the QB or the QX, you know what yeah. I mean? But, you know, you said earlier that you actually prefer something that's listed on the pinks or unlisted and they're doing maybe doing an uplisting and low liquidity, you know, so maybe talk about that experience, how you actually, it sounds like you actually, you go for the same old boring, you know, companies that are generating cash flow, potentially even, you know, uh, profitable, but that are also on the pinks, you know, and, you know, so that, that might be an interesting thing to maybe, uh, you know, uh, demystify in a sense. Sure. There actually are some of these companies on the pink sheets. Well, what I ideally like is to find them on the pinks and then have them move over to a larger um, mm. quote service because they've reached a, because they basically, they outgrew their, their position. But more of uh, the story is they're there. Yeah. And so you're able to get them at a better price because they're obscure and they're hidden um, and a lot of people, and for darn good reason, uh, big funds can't buy these stocks uh, on the OTC because they need a $100 million position. Well, you're not going to get a $100 million position in a company that trades $20 million a stock in a year. <laughs> it just doesn't – you can't do it. And so that is a world of opportunity for individuals or for small managed accounts and uh, uh, sm small small investing firms. And uh, it checks all my boxes because there's no problem with the quality of the idea. The problem is the quality or oh, the ability to purchase and to uh, build up a position. And if, unfortunately, uh, my assets are still at a size where um, I'm not priced out of these <laughs> Uh, markets. Uh, call me in 10 years and I'll, I'd love to tell you that, sorry, I just can't buy that stuff anymore. It's too small for me, but I don't have that problem yet. No, in 10 years, you're going to be like, I have a family office now. I just can't, you know. <laughs> so, But tell you what, that's what I would, I would suggest your you know, college students uh, to buy into that stuff. Oh, I think there's a whole history of people who have started in that space. And then as they've gotten uh, more successful and, and taken on other people's money, uh, they eventually have to move out of it because uh, the opportunity is too small. Uh, well, Doug, but me, th that's, a, that's a great space. Yeah. Well, Doug, let me ask you because I would assume, you know, I, I've come across some, you know, in, in our space and, you know, doing interviews and, and, you know, with companies that are listed on the pink, sometimes they're not as uh, wanting to get their message out there as they'd like. So it could make the due diligence process a little bit more difficult and, and harder to find information on companies that, you know, may have re revenues and, and, you know, just aren't on a big exchange, but finding that information that you as more of a value oriented investor, you know, want to get all that information, you know, so in your experience, what, what is, what's been the due diligence process like for you? I mean, are you still, uh, do you still, I'm sure you come across management that is willing to talk some that aren't, you know, what, what's been your experience like? Well, this actually brings up a couple issues and it's becoming more important for the, the small cap or the nano cap companies to be better about, uh, providing materials and doing some of the, uh, listings on the OTC market because we're having trouble with some brokerages not allowing us to purchase securities from uh, um, OTC uh, 
listed companies unless they meet a certain level of uh, certification. And so it's actually making it, it's a double-edged sword as companies like Merrill Edge or Fidelity don't let you buy opening positions in certain um, lightly traded stocks. It's a pain in the butt because you have to go open an account at another brokerage uh, to, to buy these. On the plus side, um, it keeps my, you know, my competition uh, at bay. Maybe they don't have an account at the other broker and they can't buy those securities. So it's less people I have to compete against. So it's good for me, but it's bad ultimately, I think, for the, uh, the companies that need the markets. And I think it's bad for, I don't want to sound uh, too high fluting here, but I think it's bad for, for democracy and bad for America that we don't have uh, better access to these companies. Uh, and don't by having more companies with public listings, we have more transparency into the business of America and the wealth that's generated um, by these small companies goes to a larger swath of individuals rather than all get tied up in some kind of private equity firm. Uh, end of end of political soapbox. <laughs> but what the uh, small companies can do is, I think they have to break down and 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 put out a little bit more information on their stocks so that they get the higher level of listings off uh, the OTC markets and then they get the approvals from the more uh, gun-shy uh, brokerage houses to, to transact in their stocks, and that helps everyone. There are companies that are dark, that is, they were once public and then they've gone off the market. Uh, off the, they no longer report to the SEC, but they're still uh, tradable. And some of those companies still produce uh, respectable uh, annual and quarterly reports and put the information out there that you need to make a reasonable investment on. And I'm very happy to buy those companies. There are other companies that go dark because their intent is to keep people away from their secret. And if you have a strong enough hunch on what um, their secrets are, they can still be worth buying if you're very patient because they might take a long time to reveal their end game and cash in their hidden assets. Um, but on the other hand, if the management of a company doesn't really want you around, I think you have to give a lot of thought to uh, um, not being you know, part of their, their game. If they don't want you with them, um, I think you're going to enter a world of frustration and it's best to be uh, alongside somebody who has a much more pro-shareholder mindset, I, I think, will, will serve you well in the long term. Mm -hmm. So that actually leads to my next question, because you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, you sometimes like finding companies that may be on the pinks or, you know, that uh, or under the radar, so to speak, that maybe had a historical accident. So rather than asking what the historical accidents were that led them to where they currently are today, you know, what are some, you know, let's, I'll just call it accidents that you see microcaps do that, you know, definitely that make you be like, all right, I'm not touching this with a 10 foot pole. Oh, um, CEOs that are taking whopper salaries that issue lots of options. Um, that's a quick way to chase me out of the game. Um, I think small cap stocks, especially the micro cap stocks, 
in general uh, get a bad reputation reputation and are painted with a very broad brush when there's quite a number of good companies in there. But hey, there are some bad operators out there. And there are some people who are managing the business as a uh, for themselves and not for their shareholders. Um, I think you have to look at when you when I'm assessing a company for the first time, I'm asking my one of the questions I'm asking is, how does the CEO or how do the largest shareholders get their money out of this company? How do they plan to make money on this company? And um, a lot of times, brand new investors don't appreciate that there are other ways to make money besides the stock of a company going up in price, and that they think that uh, uh, everyone's his CEO is going to treat you like Warren Buffett treats shareholders of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you could, I invested in a company that I thought was. Uh, had a reasonable opportunity to uh, uh, do well. And I started realizing they had financing that they were using, which in itself was not a problem because the business was in a transition and it was in a risky period. And so it had to pay a lot for its financing. But the longer I looked at it, the more I realized that insiders were doing the financing and whether the common equity holders would do well or not, the people who were offering the high interest rate financing were almost assuredly going to get their money back and get the high uh, 18% yields. Well, all they needed to do was keep the business alive and they were going to make good money on the money they were loaning to the company. Myself, as a common equity holder, was only going to make money if the equity did well. And so I had this misalignment. And I see that more often in a small company because in a small company, it's easier for the insiders to control um, the controlling asset. If it's a $200 million company, you only need $101 million in the equity to con- have majority of the vote. If you're running a $10 billion company, you need to have $5 billion and $1, and that <laughs> limits the pool of people who can do that. Though I would say if you look at some of the big reorganizations that have happened, um, uh, Sears, I didn't say that. Uh, I've never owned Sears. Um, I thought about shorting it many times, but uh, <laughs> I've actually, it's a side to say that lifetime, the total of all my shorts has been a negative realization. I had been better off if I'd never learned that that button was available <laughs> on the, on the trade sheet. And it's not because I was wrong on the companies. It's because, um, Shorting is a alternate universe where the rules of logic don't apply. When something is trading for twice what it's deserving, it doesn't mean it should necessarily go back and trade for one times its value. It could once you've left the realm of logic, why not trade for ten times what it's worth or a hundred times what it's worth? It really doesn't matter. And eventually you'll be caught in a situation where you risk having to get your shares called back in because you don't have control over the shares that you are shorting. And so you decide, I better just uh, take my loss and, and move on, even though if you could have held out to that position, 
99 times out of 100, you have been proven correct. So that's a space where I've learned um, that I'm not suited for that. There are technical reasons it doesn't work. And also, that's a case where what I'm comfortable with, if I buy something as a, as a long position and it moves against me and I really know what I own, I see a downturn as an opportunity to increase my position if I haven't bought too much already. I don't want to go too crazy on the oversizing. Whereas when you're short, um, you get into this unreality land where you, um, you're disconnected from reality and goodness knows what will happen next. So bless those people who, uh, who have uh, ice in their veins and can watch something move against them by 10 X, but that's not me. So that's not my space. Gotcha. So how about, so I, you know, as a, as a retail investor, you know, one thing I always am curious about and that I know my audience is curious about is, you know, your, um, your experience as part of your due diligence process is having access to management and your willingness to want to talk with management teams. You know, I, I know you do cause I saw you, I, I, of course I saw you in Chicago. So I, you know, you were at the meetings and you know, you, you were asking CEOs some questions that on, on comp CEOs of companies, but you know, you know, when you're at home and you're part of doing your daily routine, you know, what is your experience like in, and as part of that due diligence process in talking with management teams? I am very careful about my interactions with management. Um, I do attend a couple of conferences every year where uh, CEOs or uh, CFOs are, are made available. And nine out of 10 CEOs are really great people that uh, you'd love to have as your next door neighbor. And they're natural salespeople by and large. No one gets to the top of a company, even a small company, without an ability to um, schmooze and make you feel comfortable and uh, present their position well. So you're you're dealing with people who have a very optimistic, um, passionate um, style, and they're going to make you feel comfortable um, and address your concerns the best they can because they're they're really good at it that's that's why they got to where they are so I'm not looking to those individuals for um, a great insight on hey what's third quarter of 2021 gonna look like um, I'm <laughs> I'm trying to see hey does this person uh, have a good understanding of capital allocation. Uh, is this person spent 15 minutes talking and all they care about is absolute growth, but no apparent appreciation for growth per share? Um, do, do they talk about per share values or do they talk about when we get our next funding round, we'll have the money to advance, you know, to build our next factory. Um, the more they talk about funding, the <laughs> the more worried I get and the more they talk about um, the, the, the passion and the uh, unique proposition that their company provides, the more interested I get. And so I'm trying to learn what it is that they know about their product, 
or their market and their, the space that they work in that I don't know and how that will help, how that will help me. Um, but if I just listen to CEO buy uh, four out of five companies where I meet the CEO, <laughs> and that's not my ratio. Um, Wait, say that one. Uh, more, say that one more time. If if I was just um, if I just made my my purchase decision based on meeting the CEO and hearing them talk for ten minutes, I would probably buy. 80% of the companies that I, of the CEOs I, I listen to, I'd be like, dang, that sounds great, man. I can't wait. <laughs> this stuff's awesome. And then I get back and I find like, oh, this would have been more awesome at about 10% the price, you know? Right. <laughs> too bad I didn't, too bad I didn't hear this guy last year. Um, um, but it, it's very, it's very valuable. Uh, if you, my favorites are the founders the people have been with the companies for, for 20 years and they, uh, um, uh, they know the product backwards and forwards. They, they haven't been brought in to do a, a quick fix and a cleanup job. Um, they have a company that, uh, maybe it's been in the family a long time, or maybe the person f- founded the business themselves 15, 20 years ago. And that maybe that's why it's public is because, it was created at a time when more smaller companies were um, uh, were listed, and they found their niche, and their niche is underappreciated, um, but it offers uh, a pretty compelling value. Now, a lot of those companies aren't set up for the uh, multi-baggers. Uh, I know a lot of the microcap people are always on the quest for a 10x and a 100x, and that's a very legitimate way to invest. Um, if you're looking for the the 10x investment, you're probably much more willing to suffer a lot of goose eggs than I am. Uh, I don't really like to buy things that are going to go to zero, but I'll be the f- first to uh, agree with you that if you buy um, 10 stocks and nine of them go to zero, but one of them goes to 50, uh, <laughs> you're going to do a lot better than me. <laughs> 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 and that that's a perfectly great way to invest but you have to be comfortable with that when i try doing something like that i find myself uh getting frustrated that i own these things that are going to go to zero and then i get rid of all of them including the one that actually turned out to be pretty good ironically i think this is all emotional on my part i think if there was a closed-in fund that owned a combination of those and i had no control over its composition but I, if you told me that you have a, uh, a closed-in fund with 100 stocks, 99 of them are going to go to zero, and one of them is going to go to 1,000, um, <laughs> I think I could own that without any problem. But watching the, the details of that many stocks uh, and knowing that so many of them have problems, I would, I would get uncomfortable and I would play the game all the way through, which goes back to my point. You, you have to stick with a style of investing that, that works for you so that when uh, everyone can manage a, any investing style when it's going up. But there are down days. Um, you know, we've had a couple good years here of late. This is October 2018, and uh, you know, it's been kind of a nasty month. But if you know what you've owned, it's not really that nasty. Um, but if you don't know what you have, months like this can really cause you to hit the panic button mm-hmm. 
And in which case, you probably shouldn't be buying individual stocks. Mm-hmm. So, Doug, you know, I, I, this is one of my favorite questions, and, and you probably know what's coming. And, and really, what I want to know is, you know, what experience would you say helped guide your microcap investing thesis? Um, I, th- I think learning that if if you understand what you own, there's every reason to believe that you should actually do better in a micro cap than in a large cap um, because you're competing against a less sophisticated um, group of investors. Mm-hmm. If, if you're going up against um, Seth Klarman and Carl Icahn, really, you, you, you think you got an edge? <laughs> um, so go where they're not. Um, there's an old joke about um, Bobby Fischer, the, the chess champion. It goes along the lines of, uh, you know, how do you beat Bobby Fischer? Well, you play him in anything but chess. And that's pretty much my, my view on investing alongside, you know, Seth Carmen. Pick something else. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm guessing you had an experience where you picked something alongside Seth and maybe didn't do as well. <laughs> well, I, I was very fortunate. I got serious about my investing in the late 90s. And I was working in IT. And I was working alongside people who didn't know anything about investing. This was when I was reading all the Buffett books I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And they were all buying Syscom, three, you know, Baybridge. Uh, oh, God. I'm trying to think of the crazy names. Uh, Nortel, um, Pets.com. Anyway, the IT people all thought that they knew all the uh, – all the companies because they're using the products. And I was like, but these things are selling for 500 times earnings. And uh, Cisco was selling for half a trillion dollars in 2000. And I'm thinking it's going to take Sun Microsystems was going to take 25 years of accelerated growth to, to grow into its market cap. All these things died and they were all um, investing in them and I wasn't. And so they were making my buddies were all making big money and i was looking at at classic value stocks in 98 99 in 2000 and those i had decent returns those years but at that point i was still staying in the large stocks and seeing all the dot com stuff crash and seeing the opportunities in the space that was ignored was a really uh, a key lesson for me, which is generally you don't want to go where the crowd's going. So God bless those people make it, who made money in crypto. Uh, and there's going to be people who make money in cannabis stocks. God bless them, but it won't be me. <laughs> on the flip side, I haven't lost a dime in crypto, and I'm not going to lose a dime on a Mary Jane stock. It's just not going to happen. Um, and it's not about how much you make as much as how much you don't lose. If you don't lose any money, every time you have a 30% return, you're up 30%. It's not that hard to find things that will go up 30%. What's hard to do is to buy 20 stocks um, that you think are gonna go up 30% without 
having a few duds in there, and those duds will really drop your uh, drop your returns. And so if you can keep the bad ones out, um, you'll you'll do much better. You know the the line: if you buy a stock for a hundred and it drops fifty percent, it's selling for fifty. To make that money back, though, you don't need a fifty percent gain. You now need a hundred percent gain. Mm-hmm. Well, those <laughs> those two X's. That's kind of nice, you know, and they're a lot nicer if you can keep the whole 2x. So one of my sayings is um, I don't want to buy anything that I wouldn't want to buy more of if it goes down. And it sounds like, duh, of course, who wants to buy something that goes down? But there's certain companies that you can look at and you can say, if this, if you woke up tomorrow and you saw the stock was uh, down by half, could you have predicted it? And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe it was a company that had one customer that was two-thirds of its business. And if you buy that company, there's an excellent chance that someday the largest customer will want to uh, renegotiate its contract. (laughs) Your company is going to get hammered. Would you want to – you know in advance that that stock has a great potential for getting cut in half any time that happens. The way to avoid losing half your money in that stock is to not buy it in the first place. Um, and so that's what I, I try to do. So instead, if I buy things that I don't think are going to have that kind of a bad outcome happen, there's an excellent chance that if that stock goes down by 25% because the market's just being weird that day, uh, or a large owner needs to sell out his position or somebody accidentally hits uh, a market order on a thinly traded stock, um, you have a great chance to go in and buy more. And so I, I don't like to buy things that that I wouldn't want to buy more of if the price goes down. So, so Doug, we're, we're rounding the bend here. And, uh, you know, I just want to make sure people know, uh, you know, where can my audience go and find more information about you and, uh, and your blog? Um, I'm kind of a regular on the, uh, Buffett Munger circuit. So if you're out in Omaha or, uh, LA for one of the annual meetings, you probably see me out there. My, blog no called strikes.com i don't post as much as i should but i do try to get something out there uh, a couple times a year all right most of the items have turned out fairly decent um and if you want to reach me uh, you go to like the about button on no called strikes.com and this little contact page and uh wish you well all right well doug thank you again for joining me today i i, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh i hope to see you soon out here in la oh you bet Take care. Take care. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Doug, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Brown, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving.